0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. you got your Bibles, go to 1 Peter chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this morning, 1 Peter chapter 4, as you turn there, I'll see if I can remind anybody. Have you seen the movie Ants? Anybody <clears throat> seen the movie <clears throat> Ants? If you're, if you're under five feet tall and haven't seen that, shame on your parents, all right? So, yeah, yeah, I just shamed your parents. It's all right. Um, all right. Just like G, all right. So anyways, but there's an early scene in the movie Ants, and there's like the way that it's, it's a cartoon, pixel, uh, Pixar, and the, and the camera, the way they show it is like the camera, it comes down from the, from the sky, out of the, out of the city, um, into the blades of grass, and he goes all the way down, blades of grass, into this uh, little room, into the main character, and there's an ant, and his name is Z. And Z is sitting on a, on a leaf, which is a, like a couch, and it's a therapist's couch, and he's talking to his therapist. And he's saying this, this is the, this is the dialogue says, all my life I've, I've lived and I've worked in the big city and I always tell myself that there's got to be something better out there. He says, maybe I, uh, maybe I think too much. I, I think everything must go back to the fact that I had a very anxious childhood. My mother never had time for me. When you're the middle child in a family of five million, you don't get much attention. He says, I mean, how is it possible? I mean, I've always had these abandonment issues, which which have plagued me. I mean, my father was basically a drone, like I've said. The guy flew away when I was just a larva in my job. Don't get me started on my job. It really annoys me. I mean, I wasn't cut out to be a worker. I feel physically inadequate. My whole life, I've never been able to lift more than ten times my own body weight. And when you get down to it, handling dirt's not my idea of a rewarding career. I mean, what is it? I'm supposed to do everything for the colony? What about my needs? What about me? I mean, I've got to believe there's a place out there that's better than this. Otherwise, I'd just curl up into a larva position and weep. The whole system just makes me feel insignificant. The therapist responds, excellent! you made a breakthrough! And he says, I have? He says, yes, Z, you are insignificant, replies the therapist. So the scene shifts, and you see millions of worker ants. You know and they're all shown doing the same work, and there's an elaborate network of tunnels and endless lines, and all these ants carrying pieces of dirt, and uh, new ants getting marked out to be workers, or uh, you know part of different. This is it's just a sea of ants, and so it shows Z going back to his workstation. He says, "Okay, all right, I've just got to keep a positive attitude and a good attitude, even though I'm utterly insignificant." I'm insignificant with an attitude. That's his hope. That's his resolve. You know, I don't know, but life feels a lot like that way, you know. You're doing all that you can to muster up some significance. And most of the days it doesn't work. I mean, life can get very self-focused. I mean, we can perseverate on who we are, and, and why we're here, and, and are we measuring up, and are we significant, or, or, or are we ever going to be significant, or, or, or when's our big break coming? And, and some people, they just end up giving up. I mean, they just get discouraged, they throw in the towel, and that's all there is, and so they retreat into themselves, they kind of resign to the whole deal. I mean, you know, like, like Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, it's just all vanity, right? It's, it's just pointless, this is meaningless. <clears throat> I've seen a lot of believers come to this place. I've had a lot of friends come to this place. Just get to the place and go, you know what, it just, just seems meaningless to me. I don't see the point anymore. Well, the great news is the Bible, the Bible actually addresses this explicitly. I mean, the Bible's not unaware of this human struggle, this this human angst, this this tension we we all feel inside of us. So the Bible doesn't shy away from that. It's not uh, it's not unaware of it. In fact, right? the Holy Spirit inspires biblical writers, and they, and they write directly into. This human condition that we have—I mean, this reality—that listen, man, I'm, I'm born in a place in time, and I know that listen, I've got you know 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, and there is lots of history that happened before me, and quite possibly lots of history that will happen after me. And and, and what? Why am I here? What's my place? And does it even matter? What am I living for and why? Well, we've been talking about over the last several weeks this um, concept of a a better way. Um, The series here this August. In the first week, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 8 and we talked about this better way. There was, you know, the people had just built the wall, rebuilt the wall in Jerusalem. And all of the people, they gathered to hear Ezra teach God's Word, and then they gathered as one man because they they wanted to be formed by what God said and who God was. They they believed that, listen, who we are is defined by what God says and who God is. So we looked at that. Last week, we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we talked about, you know, sort of the vision of the church, of, of, you know, our vision here is growing uh, communities and, and building leaders and living generously. And we looked last week at this idea of building leaders, and we installed some new deacons and elders and deacons around our campuses, and we said, look, the, 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 living a, a better way, this, this better way, I mean, we, we, we have to have leaders. I mean, the church is designed to, to help us and to encourage us and to build our faith and to, and to, and to fight for us and protect us, and, and we've got to have biblical leaders to do that. We looked at that last week. Well, this morning, as we look at Peter's letter, I want to talk this, this better way. He's going to speak about a way, you know, a, a life that, that's not lived inward, it's not f- focused inward, that we move the questions from, you know, why am I here, and, and who am I, and, and when am I going to be significant, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a life that, that begins to look outward rather than inward. And it's the idea that that when your life begins to enrich others, your life is truly enriched. But the, the reality is that's not natural for us. That's not our default. But it is life that is a better way. So the Bible over and over again presents this paradigm, I mean, these two, two ways of, of life. You know, There's our way, this natural way, this default way, this way of our heart, the, the way our brain says, well, this is the way it ought to be. And then the Bible comes along and says, no, no, there's a better way. You know, earlier this summer, we were looking at the pursuit of wisdom. We looked at Proverbs, we looked at Psalms, the writer of Proverbs says, there's a way that seems right to a man. We looked at that last week. A way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads, leads to death. We know that. Proverbs it also says, well, the, the righteousness of the blameless, he keeps his way straight. That's one way. But the wicked, which is really what we all are to one degree or another, falls by his own wickedness. There's two ways. The, the wage of the righteous life leads to life. But the gain of the wicked to sin. And so over and over, there's this contrast. You open up the Psalms, the very beginning of the Psalms, the very first Psalm is this sort of contrast, you know, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of sinners, but but delights in the law of the Lord. And at the end of that, it says, that, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So there's these two ways. There's our way, this sort of natural way, this default way, the way we come into the world thinking and living and walking and going. About, and then there's this better way. And this morning we're looking at Peter's letter, and he's writing to a group of believers. And these believers, he's reminding them of the very same things. So they're scattered, these believers, around Asia Minor at the time in the first century. Uh, they're scattered around the world, Literally. And he calls them exiles, and they're exiles because they've come to faith in Christ, that they've been saved, but now they find themselves sort of out of step or out of sync with the world around them. I mean, so they're in the world, but they're not of the world, and they're trying to, to live that. They're trying to hang on to that. But they're experiencing, what they're experiencing is that this is a hard place To live. I mean, things around them aren't getting any better. In fact, they're getting worse. Even in the day, even at the day, the height of the the Roman campaign, you know, the the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. I mean, it's supposed to be peace. Things are supposed to be getting better. But it's not getting better for them. In fact, it's getting worse for them. Much worse. Many of them are experiencing suffering and, and all kinds of suffering. So some of it, is suffering for their faith. Some of it is suffering because they're, I mean, they're suffering poverty. Some of it is because of their family and their friends that you know that they love are sick and they're and they're dying. And so but Peter's reminding them. He, he's saying, look, look, in this life, as a believer, there are seasons that are hard and there are seasons that are lonely and there are There are moments when discouragement will seem overwhelming and it's hard to fight for your faith. Peter's, I know it is, I know it is, I know it's hard. And that's why he's writing to them, to to encourage them, to remind them, to to fight along with them and to fight for them, to to fight for their faith. That's what we do in the body of Christ. We we fight for each other's faith. Because Peter, listen, Peter knew discouragement, didn't he? He knew loneliness. Peter knew what it was like to absolutely fail in this thing called faith. But he also knew firsthand the joy of Jesus meeting him right where he was and loving him right where he was. So that's why he writes to them. He's going to write to them at the very beginning. He starts it off. He says, "You know, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, According to his... Great mercy, he he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You, you look, look. I, I know you look around and everything seems to be getting worse and suffering, and it seems to be closing in on you. But listen, that's not your end. That's not your destiny. There's a there's an unfading. Glory that's awaits you. But because of Jesus rose from the dead. And you're being kept, he says, by God's power, and you're being guarded through faith for salvation, and it's ready to be revealed. It's ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, you, you, You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. He says, all all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. Uh, The the grass withers and the flower falls. But, But the Word of the Lord remains in you forever. Which means you'll live and remain forever. And all this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So he's encouraging them. So that leads me to, to this 1 Peter chapter 4. And this is where we are this morning. And, and he's saying the same kinds of things. And so he's going to talk about in 1 Peter 4, he's going to give them two fixed points in time. And see if you can hear the two fixed points in time as I read these first 11 verses in 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll talk about it. It's just this, Peter writes... Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that's past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and and they malign you, but they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, that they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who... Serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter's contrasting these two ways of life, and he gives the readers two fixed points in time to keep your eyes on. And then he begins, maybe we'd ask it this way. So when, when life gets difficult, when you know, when, it, when life squeezes in on you and the pressure of life is overwhelming, and where do you go? What, what do you do? And that's what Peter's saying. This is why we arm ourselves. So in verse 2, we, we no longer are what we were. Now we are people who live in and, and of and because and by the, the will of God. And, and the and the point in time that he fixed is, listen, we live by the will of God. And what that means is we live by the will of God because of the cross, because of what Jesus has done on the cross. This is the first point in time. And he's saying, listen, you've got to remember the cross. Because it's easy to escape. It's, it, it, it's easy to check out. I mean, when it's easy that the default, when things are stressful and they press in is to indulge our hearts with some sinful behavior and hope to forget everything for a little while. It's easier to do that than to remember the cross. He's saying, look, that's a better way. I mean, the temptation is to medicate ourselves or to numb ourselves with a little managed sin, you know. He says, look, for, for whoever is suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What he's saying is, listen, you've got to resolve in your mind. You've got to resolve what you're going to do with sin. I mean, so do you have some 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 managed sin sin you think you can control, sin you think you have a handle on and and uh, only use it when you need it? Well, when you've resolved, he says, you you arm yourself with thinking, look, sin has to go. It's got to be killed. i got to get sin. There's not a place for sin. The will of God in my life and sin in my life, these things don't go together. Where there is sin in my life, I lose perspective of the will of God. I lose this perspective. I lose sight of the better way. So look, Jesus took the sin on himself. He he died for it. He did the only thing that could be done with sin. He, He killed it. So Peter said, look, we remember the cross. We, we go back there, and then there's suffering involved. Whoever suffered in the flesh will cease from sin. He said, look, it's hard. He's not saying suffering always purifies. He's not saying suffering always sanctifies. Not that suffering doesn't always make you holy. But if you're going to you know, deal with this, and say, look, sin, I don't want to live comfortably with sin in my life anymore. It'll be hard. There'll be a suffering that takes place. Listen, suffering doesn't always lead to your betterment. Suffering can can lead to bitterness, that's for sure. Some of you have experienced it. But Peter's getting at our hearts. He's not addressing behavior so much as he's getting under behavior and looking at our hearts. He said, look, have you resolved this about sin? Are you keeping it around some little sin you have? Because you think you might need it someday. Just not really ready to get rid of it yet. He's not talking about sinless perfection. He doesn't believe that. He's not saying, listen, ceasing from sin and you'll never sin again. He's talking about your heart's resolve towards the sin in your life. And he's also addressing, what do you do with sin. Because this is kind of important. I mean, the conventional way, the, the natural way, the, the usual way is that we, we, we say, well, well, I'm going to just try harder. I mean, we know what's right. I mean, we don't, have to, we don't need people to follow us around and say, okay, well, this is sin and that's not sin. I mean, we know the sin in our life. In a conventional way, isn't it? you hear a sermon, you get convicted about it, you say, oh, oh sin, I I gotta get rid of that, I'm gonna deal with that, I am gonna try harder. And so you do. So you make some laws for yourself, you you do what you know, good, righteous people do. You condemn yourself, you spend a little time doing that. Set a timer, thirty minutes, condemn, condemn. Till you sufficiently feel like you've condemned yourself enough. And then you say, look, I'm, I'm going to you know, follow this new law. I'm never going to do that again. You vow. You say some vow. You know, I'm never, ever, ever, ever going to do this again. And then I, instead, I'm going to replace it with some righteous stuff and some holy stuff. And, and I'm going to show God just how good I am. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk out of here, and I'm going I'm to, this time, I'm going to show Him just how good I am. I'm going to show Him I can do better. And listen, that that's good. I mean, it, I think, you know, changing your behavior is a good thing. I, I'm all for that. And I, see, somebody asked me, well, should I change my behavior? Absolutely change it. Change everything about you, I think. That's what you should do. And it will work for a while. But it's kind of like that, you know, have you been to Chuck E. Cheese in a while? I mean, it's kind of like that game at Chuck E. Cheese, you know, where you got the mallet and then things come up out of the holes, you know, and you're trying to hit the things, and they, they just keep coming up. Unless you're eight years old, you're never gonna hit them all. You're always gonna be behind. I mean, that's the best we can do. And so Peter's strategies look, he's a look, Jesus has done everything, that's where you begin to focus. Jesus has done everything. That's the starting place. And then there's this reckoning where you go, okay, I'm gonna trust Jesus has done it all. He's conquered sin. He has He's forgiven me. He's taken all my sin on him, and he's granted me forgiveness. He's made me clean by his righteousness. You know what? And I'm reckoning, and I'm going to remind myself, I don't feel very lovable today. But Jesus loves me. I believe that. Boy, I I wouldn't love me today. But he loves me. He died for me. In fact, He he took all of my sin. And He died on the cross with it. And, And He clothed me in His pure, righteous vestments. And it's not because I vowed that I was going to do better. It's because He loved me. So that's the starting place. you've got to settle that in your mind. You're never gonna, the better way, the better way's never coming, unless you've settled that in your mind. Only then are you armed to fight for a faith that leads you in the better way. Remembering what Jesus has done, too often we say, well, we start with, what am I supposed to do?" And rather, we need to start with, what is Jesus already?" That's where you go. In verse 4, he says, look, don't be surprised that when you begin to think this way, when you resolve this, that the people around you aren't going to be enthusiastic about that in your life. And the deal is, here's the reason, because your old friends and and maybe your family and, and those around you, I mean, they're going to be the quickest to point out how ridiculous the grace of God really is, and particularly the grace of God in your life. I mean, they've been around you. They know you. And The things you've forgotten about, they haven't forgot about, and they still bring up. They think it's ridiculous that you believe somehow you're different than they are, or that you're different than you were. So, what you need to just be quick to answer and go, "Oh, you know, you know what I'm." Actually, I'm worse than you ever imagined that I was. Because in verse five, what it says is that they speak badly now. In the day when realities revealed, that I have to confess, you know what? What we said is true. That our life, our life was pure and holy and blameless and acceptable to God because it was lived in Christ. And in verse 6, what he means is that there were believers that had died, but they'd heard the gospel, they'd become believers, it is finished, was the course of their life, and even though they physically died, spiritually, they live. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, awaiting the resurrection of a new and glorified body to live forever. That's what he's saying. And then in verse 7, he gives us the second point. Fixed point in time. The first one is the cross. The second one, did you notice it? The end of all things is at hand. <laughs> that The end of all things is at hand. The day. The day Jesus comes back. The, the question this morning is, so what, are you, what day are you living for? What, what are you living for? Are you living for today? Are you living in light of that day? The end of all things is at hand. He's speaking about the coming of Jesus, the next event on the horizon. And the reason that the end is near is that the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, it has inaugurated the last days. The last days have begun. So the New Testament, it doesn't speak about immediacy. It speaks about imminence. So the doctrine of the return of Christ means, listen, there's no other event that has to take place before Christ returns. I mean, it could be another 200 years. It could be only two minutes from now. That's the reality. In fact, John Calvin said, it ought to be the main thought of the believer to fix his mind Constantly on the return of Jesus. Let me ask you, how long has it been since you've just thought about that? You know, the, the trumpet sounds and the sky splits and the King of Kings returns. That's your future. We're waiting for it. It may come in our life, and it may we or we'll be on the other side and come with him. That's what he's saying. So Peter's getting at so which end are you living for? What, what are you living for? So some people live for more money, but to make a name for yourself. Are, are, you, are you living for? For retirement? I would argue what Peter is saying is, listen, at any point on the horizon that we've made our end, that's not that day, the return of Jesus, it diminishes what we're called to in this life. It diminishes the, the, the degree to which you know why you're here. It diminishes your joy, the greater the end, the greater the joy. That's Peter's argument. And there's only one end that doesn't disappoint. There's only one end that ultimately meets your expectations. Only one that truly and completely without reservation will come and you will say, you know what, it, oh, it was worth the sacrifice. In fact, it sacrifice? What sacrifice? I don't even remember it compared to how glorious this is. There's only one. So maybe say it this way What is it that has the controlling pull on your life? I mean, we have lots of goals in life, and goals are good. I'm not saying don't have goals. I mean, if you get a college degree or or to get married, or, or, you know, drive, or have financial goals, or career goals. And I remember, I was, you know, just before I got my driver's license, I remember thinking, I had the thought, I was like, oh, please, or don't come back before I get my driver's license. <laughs> I, mean, I just really wanted to drive. Well, that was disappointing. So, anyways. But at the time, I mean, you know, we, we do. We fix our minds on these goals short of the... The end and and they pull us and they have a grab on us and they they can't ever meet up our expectations. And they're look, they're fine, they're good, they're they're fine goals that we gotta submit them to God. And they can't be the ultimate end to which we're living for. If they are, that's the problem. Because listen, what if you don't reach that goal? I mean, what if you fail? I mean, what if tragedy comes? What if life throws you, you know, a curveball? You can hold on to the end, hold, cling tightly to the end, hold everything else loosely. It's the only way that, listen, somebody with a financial goal will be able to be financially generous. If you're hanging on so tightly to your financial goals, you'll never know the joy of generosity. It's the only way a single person doesn't become desperate. It's the only way a guy is able to make the choice to leave the office and to go home and to be at home. Yeah, you know, I want to advance my career. I want to do well. I want to, want a promotion. Those are all good things, but it's not my ultimate end. So, you know what? I can leave the office today. I, mean, I can go home and I can be with my family. It's the only way somebody without a college degree can know, you know, if that's their goal, I never got a college degree. I never got that. I'll never be anybody. It's the only way they're gonna know. So, my identity's not in education. Of course, it's not. Of course, it isn't. Or, what if you do reach the goal? What if you do catch it? Then what? I mean, you remember the famous interview, right? Steve Croft, 60 Minutes, Tom Brady. Tom Brady, you know, arguably the best quarterback ever, which I hate to say that, but it's true. No, he's won three Super Bowls. At the time, he'd won three Super Bowls. Steve Cross, 60 minutes. He's interviewing him. He's like, hey, um, man, you're living the dream, right? I mean, you, you've done it. You've, you've done everything every little boy has ever dreamed about. What Man. What's it like? Brady says, you know, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still feel like there's something greater out there for me? I mean, a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's, it's got to be something more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. So Croft says to him, What's the answer then? And Brady says, man, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. He'd gotten it. He'd achieved it. It didn't satisfy. There is only one end to live for. And Peter says, that end is imminent. Isn't that great? So... Remember the cross, live with the end in mind, and he says this leads to life, this better way, this, this life that is, that's an overflowing of a generosity. So, you know, growing communities, building leaders, living generously, this is the better way. Look at what he says, verse 8. He says this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. There's this generosity in love that that then overflows into our lives. So he says, above all, above all. Don't miss this. Above all, keep loving one another. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 13. So if I speak with tongues of men and angels, which is a pretty big deal. I mean, if I spoke with tongues of angels, I mean, that's a pretty big deal. But if I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. He says, if I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and, and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. That's what he says. And he says this. Peter does, and Paul's sentiment is because it covers over a multitude. of says love doesn't keep score, grants forgiveness freely to every. Brother and sister in Christ and husband and wife and son and daughter and mom and dad. It does. Peter, he asked Jesus, how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother? Is seven good enough? No. Seventy times seven. Try that. Start there. See, love directed primarily at self seeks to attack others love directed at others seeks to cover hofering, mend and heal at weddings I often read Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 13 uh-huh. love is patient love is kind it's not jealous you know it right it doesn't brag and it's not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It, it doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And then, then he says, It's, it's poetry. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You know, then he ends it. he says, Love never fails. Never fails. So it was hard. I know it. I know. I know it's hard. But it never fails. So I remind the couple standing there as, you know, you're brother and sister in Christ. And it means you'll live forever in eternity and you share an eternal relationship. So you let that, e- ter- that relationship, the eternal relationship, feed and nourish your temporal marriage relationship so that you taste eternity in your marriage. That we taste it in our life groups. Women's Bible studies and men's Bible studies and youth group and over coffee with a couple of guys or a couple of gals and we're fighting for each other's faith and we're loving each other so that we taste then, now, Love never fails. Generosity and love. We'd be generous with it. Generosity and kindness. Look at verse 9. It says, So hospitality one another without grumbling. The word hospitable, it means love of strangers and here, you know, love of the, the church, one another. Most people think it means to get the house clean. but, but it's like reaching out and, and taking in. It's reaching out and pulling in. C-c-c- come have some of what we have, sharing. Listen, there are things that are going to happen in your home, that can happen in your home that will never happen in a church, ever. Do you know that? I remember when Jay was born. Oh. So, Jay, my son was born. We were in Richardson. We had this little bitty house. I was in seminary, and I'd, Leslie was coming home, and I'd run home, and I got in the house all clean. I mean, clean. I mean, it was clean. And my in laws came, and they brought all their suitcases and stuff. And I'm like, I don't know where the suitcases are going to go. Um, so, they came in, and I told my mother in law, I said, hey, you got to put that in the garage. She just looked at me It's like, I was like, yeah, I, I, there's no place for your, for your luggage. You're going to have to go in the garage. So my in-laws dressed and changed clothes in the garage. For the... <laughs> so that's not hospitality, all right? It's not what he's talking about. He says the words without grumbling. You know why he says that? Because he knows who he's writing and he knows who's going to read this later on 2,000 years ago. Because you know what? It's, it's so easy to go, you know what? I'm so tired. We don't, uh, it's not convenient. It's never convenient. But we wouldn't cave into the temptation to begrudge. Sharing with others what we have. You want to you taste then, now. Now, let generosity overflow in kindness in your life. Just watch what happens, and then finally, generosity of grace. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's ferried grace. If you've been to Discover Bethel, or if you remember it, or it was one of the things I talk about at Discover Bethel, that this passage has always been one of those I just can't believe. Just can't believe it's there. One, but. It says we've all received a gift. If you're a believer, you have received a gift. And what he calls it is this gift. It's a grace. You've received a portion of the grace of God. So not only have we been given the Word of God and we've been given the Spirit of God, we've been given this third great resource, which I always joke about. It's like, it's not the resource I would have picked. It's the people of God. And the reason I wouldn't have picked it is because I know people. I am one. But God has deposited, given a portion. He's taking a portion of his grace. He's put it in every believer. You have a portion of his grace. And it's not for you. It's for those around you. There's grace. Look around. There's grace. There's God's grace all over this room. People say, I need more grace. I need more grace. This is where you find it. That varied word is a kaleidoscope, rainbow, multicolored. That's what the word means. It's used one other time. Peter uses it at the beginning of his book when he talks about the various trials, the various sufferings. I think he means these various sufferings are met with the varied grace in the body of Christ. It's designed that way. We're meant to suffer with each other so that we would know God's grace from each other. It means we've got to be generous with the grace God's given us. It's not for us. It's for those around us. And on that day, we're stewards. We'll give an account, So, what'd you do with the grace? We'll answer that. We'll notice here, and I'll end. Verse 11, he ends it, you know, he's so wrapped up in it. I think Peter just it's not the end of his letter. He knows it's not. He's got other things to say, but he just sort of gets caught up here and he says, May God be glorified through Jesus Christ and to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's what happens. When you begin to remember the cross and and all that that means, and you reckon that to yourself, and then you turn your eyes and you long for the day for the, for the return of Jesus. Remember what he's done, remember what he's gonna do, and, and these two things, and you begin, and that begins to orient your life. Your life begins to overflow with generosity, you begin to taste eternity. You know what? You, you just, you, you begin to worship wherever you are in whatever circumstance. You do. You do. He's just a, a worshipper. It's a doxology to worship. I've shared this story before, but I'll close it this way. The Civil War chaplain uh, Charles McCabe he writes about being in. This is a diary. He was a uh, Union soldier. He was a chaplain, and they were. Uh, he was with a whole big group of men at Libby Prison. In Richmond, Virginia, they were incarcerated there before the war was over. And uh, the conditions were bad. They were bad for everybody, but they were bad and they were losing men. Men were dying every day there. And it was, there was lots of suffering and it was, it was cold and it was, it was bleak. I mean, it was like, it was, it was depressing and you, it was a place you lost hope. And so McCabe writes in his journal about one night, he said, one night about 10 o'clock, through the stillness and the darkness, they heard a, the tramp of coming feet. It was a new prisoner. And he said, it was a young Baptist minister who we watched as his heart almost fainted. He took a look at the cold walls, and we could see him thinking about the suffering inside. He was tired and weary. He sat down, he put his face in his hands, and he wept. So just then, the lone voice of a deep, sweet pathos sung out from an upper window. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. So just then a dozen manly voices joined in on the second line. Praise him, all creatures here below. So by the time we reached the third line, there were all these men, and their hearts were full, and they and they sent the words on high: Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. So we got to the end of that song, and the prison was alive. And seemed to quiver with the sacred song and from every room into every cell, brave men sang praise, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It so says, the song died out that night, that night that was enveloped in darkness. Then into the silence, that young man stood up and shouted. Prisons would palaces prove to be if Jesus would dwell there with me? Doesn't matter where I am. Christ with me, prisons or palaces. Then, I get to taste a little of it now. What are you tasting? Where's your hope fixed? Where your eyes set, there's a better way. I invite you, if you would, would you bow with me, Father? We we do thank you, thank you for your word. We thank you that you have inspired the biblical writers to to write into the human condition. The Bible doesn't shy away; it, it's not sterile. It's it's uh... Father, you have. You have spoken right into our heart, into our lives, into our anxieties and fears, our hurts and our sufferings. And You bring to us the good news of Your Son, Jesus. All that He has done. And the great hope that we long for the grace, the glory of his return. Father, it could be any minute. Would you would you draw our hearts? Would you quicken our would you excite our hearts to think about that today? And then our lives overflow with love and kindness and grace. Father, for your glory. We ask all this the only way we can in the name of your Son Jesus and by the power of your Spirit. Amen stand together